Good morning. It's Wednesday, the 5th of July, and I'm Govindra Jethiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Our top reports and themes for the day are India's promoter owners paying themselves more than they deserve. Jio's new low-cost phone, but what exactly does it deliver? How walls are coming up in the cloud. And hmm, the Indian government actually said it will not regulate something. This is a core report with Govindraj Athiraj. Are Indian promoters paying themselves more than what they deserve? An Indian school of business study said that some 91% of all listed firms in India are family firms, which means they are either majority controlled or majority owned and in most cases also majority run by the same family. The biggest examples we can see in India are the Ambani's, the Birla's, Adani's, Jindal's, Munjal's of Hero, TVS in South India, and of course, many, many more. And this, of course, is also the case in many other parts of Asia. It is then perhaps to be expected that families who run companies also control what they get paid, given that they have the shareholding strength to pass any compensation that they would like, or rather, is the outcome of their judgment as opposed to the more likely minority shareholders. Yes, of course, we're talking about listed companies here. A study by the Institutional Investor Advisory Services in Mumbai has said that promoters are voting in their own salary despite poor investor support. They looked at 201 remuneration resolutions for promoters in 2022 and found that 68 or 34% of these would have been defeated had the promoters not been allowed to vote or did not vote. IIAS looked at some 4,991 resolutions in all, of which 579 pertained to executive directors and the overall board, of which 201, the number we referred to earlier, pertained to the remuneration of promoters. There are many cases, IIAS points out, where even non-executive chairmen in one textile company, as it happens, took a large package while the CEO was paid much less. The larger point being that promoters may let go of management positions and the responsibilities that come with executive roles, but still take more salaries than those holding those executive positions, including CEOs. Of course, compensation is a fairly nuanced issue. And in many cases, shareholders may be perfectly fine with all these permutations. Nevertheless, it does appear that in many cases, they are not fine and have expressed their opposition as the figures in this report suggested. It also turns out, apparently in some instances, that investors abstained from voting on promoters' compensation and yet in the same meeting, they voted on auditor fees. IIAS feels that this could be because of the promoters' own gravitas or imposing presence that causes them to hesitate. The larger and perhaps more critical issue here, of course, is disclosures and overall governance. To understand this and what are the issues at stake, I spoke with IIAS President and COO Hetal Dalal and began by asking her to explain what the study was really telling us. So the way to look at it is that if you separate the role of managing the company, either owning the company, right? There is a certain salary that anybody who is managing the company at the CEO level will ask for. What is happening in case of promoters, because a lot of the promoters are actually running the company, they are in management as well. So they're setting their own compensation and they're also voting their shares on it, right? Both are legitimate arguments. Yes, they need to be paid for running the company. Yes, they can vote their shares as a shareholder. But it essentially poses a conflict of interest. 
essentially you're setting your compensation and voting your shares in a conflict of interest. And therefore, to address conflict of interest in transactions, what regulator has said is that you call them related party transactions. And then therefore, if you are conflicted, you don't vote on those transactions, right? But this doesn't apply to executive compensation. Because executive compensation is out of the ambit of related party transactions, this tends to happen. If you look at the context of saying that 68, and these are the resolutions we looked at in 2022 alone, right? This is not across the world. We just taken one year to look at what, how the numbers stack up. So 201 resolutions for promoter compensation, 68 is basically what 34%, which is very high. If you look at related party transactions where the voting is by majority or minority and the promoter group cannot vote, right, in all of 2022, only nine resolutions were defeated. In this particular instance, if it was put to a majority or minority vote, like all other related party transactions, 34% of them would have been defeated. So this also suggests that in this 34%, the other investors were actively voting against these high salaries. That's right. So what you're seeing now in terms of uh, voting outcomes is that more than 75 to 80% of the capital is being voted upon. Institutional investors through their stewardship responsibilities are voting on shareholder resolutions. And you're seeing a certain increased participation through the retail channel as well. So non-promoter investors effectively have voted in majority against the particular recommendation. And that tends to be for a couple of reasons. One is just the absolute level of compensation, right? It could be very, very high for the size of business or for the performance, right? We've seen instances even during COVID where promoters have got an increase in compensation at the point in time where, you know, employees were let go or employee uh, remuneration was cut down. But yet promoters managed to get their raise, right? So one is absolute level of compensation. The other is, is it aligned to company performance? Third is, you know, what are you doing as far as other employees are concerned? So in some instances, the multiple to median employee remuneration can be as high as 2400. These are issues that investors look at and therefore in certain instances, or at least in 68 of the 201 instances, overwhelmingly investors have not supported these resolutions. Right, that's an interesting point to look at, you know, the median versus the, the absolute. I remember the Maruti chairman, R.C. Bhargava, once telling me that in Japan, the median to absolute compensation for CEOs is amongst the lowest in the world. And India, I think, is amongst the higher, maybe America is the highest. But how does one judge? I mean, you mentioned some parameters like relative performance and so on. But is that enough? Does that cover everything that we need to cover? You see, there's no right way of looking. There's a mathematical formula to remuneration. There are several, several variables. So essentially what we look at is, is remuneration within a certain range for the size of company, performance of company, and also what is the structure in terms of alignment to performance. Let's break it down. Let's look at compensation structures and absolutes, right? If you look at compensation structures of professionals versus promoters, promoters tend to have a higher degree of fixed pay. Professionals tend to have a higher degree of variable pay or even stock options. All of this requires the individual to perform, generate wealth for investors and therefore get paid. When you have a higher fixed pay compensation, you get paid to come to work. So one is just the whole pay structure, right? And therefore, you also ask the question of how much is the alignment? Now, in some cases, we've seen that promoters have a flat commission of the profits, independent of everything else, right? For example, if you're a commodity player, the steel cycle turns, you know, profits are booming. You get a flat shave of that profit level, but other executive directors don't. Therefore, you're asking the question, what is the kind of accountability for that pay? And is there a certain degree of achievement or performance target which has happened? Or is pay considered a mere right because you're a promoter? Third is, of course, you'll ask that question that, yes, if you separate ownership and management, if I have to hire someone in the market for the same role, 
would I be paying that much money? Would I get someone as equally competent or sometimes even more competent to run the same role for a different level of compensation? And then there is a benchmark across peers, right? So you look at an industry, you look at a certain peer set in terms of size and industry, and then you see whether the remuneration is in a certain range. So in 60 year resolutions, how this doesn't really fit. So looking ahead, Hetal, so, you know, when uh, one is how should shareholders and investors look at this, uh, you know, if they want to. And secondly, how can companies be more responsive to it rather than being challenged at the point that it's being challenged right now? Investors want two broad things, right? One, they want clarity on what is the compensation going to be. Uh, today, you look at the way the compensation resolutions actually come out. There's no real clarity. Everything is very open-ended and you don't really know what the final number is going to be. Even when we look at remuneration resolutions, we make estimates based on past track record of what we think is going to end up to be based on what you know the starting number is. But it's very hard to actually come up with greater clarity in terms of saying this is going to be a definite range. There are instances like, for example, when you look at Infosys or Salil Parikh's compensation, they're very, very clear in terms of what will be paid out, when will it be paid out, and what the final numbers going to look like. But you see those in very rare sort of instances. What investors want to see is just one, is there clarity in terms of what is the final payout? And two, is it being aligned to company performance? Is there a certain degree of accountability for that compensation? Again, I go back to the salary-based compensation for Infosys. It was 81 crores. It was much talked about in the media, but the resolution passed with overwhelming support. So investors essentially want to see an alignment in the compensation with their own interests in terms of creating shareholder wealth. If that is happening, investors tend to be actually okay with the entire compensation levels. Companies, I think what's happening is, um, I think the boards or more importantly, the nomination, nomination committees are failing to establish clear performance boundaries for the promoters and therefore be able to benchmark the compensation properly. In several instances, promoters tend to be part of the nomination, nomination committee. And while uh, companies will always argue that under regulation, they cannot participate in the discussion for their own compensation, it's hard to argue that the decision isn't getting influenced with their presence. Some of these conflicts of interest continue in the business when promoters hold executive positions and therefore it is incumbent upon boards to therefore set greater clarity and expectations from the promoter while setting compensation. Right. Hetal, that's uh, very useful. And addressing conflict of interest, bringing about greater clarity should definitely be something that uh, companies should uh, focus increasingly on. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Govan, for having me on the show. Speaking of shareholder wealth in general, most shareholders, if not all, are getting wealthier every day. Equity markets settled at record closing highs again on Tuesday. The S&P BSC Sensex hit an all-time high of 65,673 in intraday trade and finally closed 274 points higher at 65,479. The broader Nifty 52 closed 66 points higher at 19,389 after hitting a lifetime high of 19,434 during the day. Geo's new 999 rupee phone. What exactly does it deliver? On Monday, Reliance Geo announced a new phone costing 999 rupees with internet, which it said would liberate some 250 million 2G customers across India, referring mostly to feature phone users who do not own smartphones, the kind that you and I use for accessing the internet and, of course, WhatsApp. 
Yesterday, several investment banks issued fairly glowing reports on how this new instrument bundled with proprietary video, audio and payment apps would be game-changing. A quick sampling of these reports before we come to the point. Bank of America Securities says this will increase the competitive intensity in the market as users may be enticed to move to these plans. It also says, unlike Jio's earlier offerings which were bundled, this one is cleaner with no frills attached. JP Morgan says this would help Jio gain market share post the fading success of Jio phone devices, an important pointer to the problem that there was one earlier. MK Global said the previous Jio phone had helped transition over 100 million 2G users to data networks and Jio Bharat can transition over 100 million users if there are no supply chain or product performance hiccups. Almost all brokerages saw this development as a negative for competitor Bharti Airtel. Jefferies, another bank, said Bharti Airtel dominates the 2G market with 54% subscriber market share and this new Jio Bharat phone, as it's called, is likely to see a higher impact of this move. Now, it's been a while since we've seen a big device announcement at this scale by Reliance, followed, of course, by the kind of reports I just referred to. So my question was, will this device really shake the market up in the way some are projecting? I reached out to well-known telecom analyst Mahesh Uppal, and I began by asking him about the 2G or feature phone market with 250 million subscribers that we've all been talking about, and how he was seeing this potential transition to 4G, and more importantly, whether it would be as smooth as it appeared. So the 250 million 2G users are typically people who are low-income, people who cannot afford smartphones people largely in smaller towns, but not limited to those towns, because wherever there are low-income people, a feature phone seems to be the most affordable way of communicating, especially those whose communication is limited to phone calls and maybe some level of SMS. Now, clearly, a large number of these people who use 2G are daunted by the cost of smartphones which are not only quite high, but have been rising in recent years, as you know, because of various geopolitical reasons. So there is no doubt that Geo will be able to address a subset of these people who one would assume were daunted by the cost of smartphones. Having said that, it is important to recognize that Jio has not claimed that this 999 phone is a smartphone. In fact, the terminology used seems to be conspicuously not that of smartphones. So we must be aware that these are in some ways limited phones with some data capacity, some level of internet access, which obviously would mean that people who use them would, let's say, be able to shop or use WhatsApp and stuff like that. But uh, I also understand that the screen size is about two inches wide, which also means that the phone that we are talking about is largely limited to non-video kind of communications. So it's more transactional, more, you'll probably be able to use some video, but in a very limited way. So this is uh, a phone that certainly will help those people who miss this option and who could not afford the smartphone. And of those of that category of people, there is a large number. Whether it is as much as 220 million is uh, a time will tell. 
Yeah. And it's interesting because they, what they're saying is that they're going to give you Geo Cinema, Geo Savan, and of course, the Geo Payment app. So there is video, as you said, there is some entertainment, but uh, also bundled in the... So w- would that also therefore mean that they're not able to access other internet features or other internet sites and so on? Is that possible? It is possible. It's not explicit in whatever I have read. And as you know, the, the story is out of the press, uh, barely a few hours old. So I don't know the details, but I don't get the sense that the reported size of the screen does not seem to encourage me to think that some major video entertainment can be enjoyed using that kind of a phone. So that, I think, will mean that it is more for transactions, more for messaging, some little bit of very uh, limited video. And uh, how do you see broadly the rollout of 4G? Because what Reliance is saying uh, or Geo is saying is that they're going to take everyone to 4G. And where do we stand in terms of our overall 4G coverage and networks across the country? Uh, it's a very good point. And I think Geo must be credited for that. Geo has actually expanded access to 4G in a huge way. And especially because it is an exclusively 4G network, it doesn't have the challenges that the competitors had of legacy 2G and 3G networks. So, yes, Geo has managed to create what I think is roughly 70 to 80 percent coverage of 4G networks, which doesn't mean that 70 to 80 percent of people can access it because accessing 4G will also require a device that can use 4G. So if I am uh, somebody who has a modest income and who cannot afford anything beyond a feature phone, that 4G can only do that much for me. So I'm not a big data user. So that we must be aware of. The key bottleneck from what you're saying seems to be the instrument and the cost of it itself, not the networks which clearly now have spread across the country in terms of high-speed data. That is true to a large extent, but we should be aware that there are other barriers to accessing internet as well, whether it is digital literacy, whether it is access to relevant content, because, you know, other than some 10 major languages of India, the rest of the languages have far more uh, limited content on the internet. If you are a speaker or user of those languages, then obviously internet's relevance to you is limited. Then if you're constrained by your own personal literacy itself, then it makes a difference and so on and so forth. Because a large number of people are still not entirely comfortable using data services. For them, the phone has been largely about telephony and uh, some minimal messaging. So that number is still quite high. Right. So do you think it's possible for someone then to bring out a 4G phone or a, or a smartphone which is somewhere between 999 which is the Geo price and let's say the, uh, the lowest smartphone model available in the market today? Yes, I think it is possible. Time will tell whether that will happen. But certainly there is no doubt that this uh, handset that Geo is introducing is of course an opportunity but it's also a limited one and also that it is locked to the geo network. That is the other thing I read in the reporting. So both those things are obviously constraints and a richer and a more open access uh, device would certainly have its own attraction to people. 
especially those for whom maybe even a couple of thousand rupees is affordable, but you know, the full price of a smartphone isn't and so on and so forth. So I think there might be people who are willing and able to afford a bit more than 999 and would want the larger experience of accessing internet more widely. Right. And that would indeed be an interesting demand supply situation or equation. Mahesh, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. America to restrict cloud computing. A few years ago, we were trying to render some 3D images for which we did not have the computers or the computing power to do it in the time we had to deliver the output. Someone told us that you could reach out to a company in China which would do a 3D architectural rendering or animation if that's what we wanted. We could upload the images and get it back even as their computers and people worked 24 by 7 at a fairly affordable cost. Now this was quite wild then, particularly since we were wondering where in Mumbai city we could find the computers to do this and at what cost. Fast forward now. The US government may restrict Chinese companies' access to US cloud computing services, the Wall Street Journal is reporting. This new rule, if adopted, would likely require US cloud service providers such as Amazon and Microsoft to seek US government permissions before they provide cloud computing services that use advanced artificial intelligence chips to Chinese customers, sources told the Wall Street Journal. The Biden administration's move would follow other recent measures as Washington and Beijing wage a high-stakes conflict over access to the supply chain for the world's most advanced technology, the Wall Street Journal said. It also pointed out that on Monday, Beijing announced export restrictions on metals used in advanced chip manufacturing. While all of this is not surprising in itself, such a move from the United States does not portend well. Remember, the cloud is the cloud. Part of a world, almost mythical now, where digital or information highways seamlessly interconnect with each other, as we did some years ago, to get images rendered in China. Now, without getting into the right or wrong, it is clear that we are building more walls in a digital world we thought seamless. We have already seen several moves, for instance, to co-locate servers for data storage or separate the computing and storage from the parent company. TikTok is a classic example where there's immense pressure on the company to separate its entire infrastructure and, of course, corporate entity from its parent ByteDance, at least in the United States. Interestingly, TikTok never existed in China. It runs there under a different name called Douyin, same owner ByteDance, by the way, where it is huge too, but actually came before TikTok. Now, this is clearly turning out to be a different world. With more and more countries and regulators attempting to regulate or isolate computing connectivity, the world will not be quite the same we were getting used to or as efficient because the most powerful servers or computing infrastructure may not be that easily accessible soon. Remember, this could also work both ways. A local government might also say that you cannot store your data outside the country or an Amazon and Microsoft may have to commit that data would be stored in local servers only or also stored here, for which they would have to invest. This is happening too, like in the case of MasterCard and Visa, who have had to co-locate in India. They are, of course, payment processing companies. Now, this, you could say, is an opportunity for the makers of data centers and the like, but it would shift the cost and operations parameters quite a bit. And like I said, it's not the world we thought we were heading towards. And hmm... The government does not want to regulate something. 
In an interesting display of restraint, Union Minister Piyush Goel, also a businessman, said that startups should be governed by a self-regulatory mechanism and the government was not keen on stepping in. His comments come in the wake of several private market implosions that have begun across the startup sector, including companies like Baiju's The EdTech Company. The government should stay out of regulating startups, he said, but added that it was incumbent that we should try to create some framework that would be necessary to have orderly growth in this sector, he said while speaking at, well, a startup event in Delhi. Goel said he had been talks with Nishit Desai, a prominent lawyer, over startup regulations. He spoke to me four or five years ago and said the potential is huge and the government shouldn't intervene. The minister then recommended that a small group of startups led by Desai can perhaps create some kind of regulatory or self-regulatory mechanism before the government starts interfering in their business or circumstances go out of control. Hmm, again. Knowing Nishit Desai's free market bent of mind and assuming it's not changed much, I do wonder how he would approach it. But Goel's larger point is well taken that the IT sector, which is a mainstay of large part of India's international trade and business, has fared well with minimal government intervention, a point the IT industry itself takes great pains to point out now and again. Goel says he sees the startup ecosystem at some point intersecting with the IT sector and particularly with the new age world of AI and quantum computing. Of course, there are two contextual points to note. One, no one threw money at India's IT sector and for the most part of its foundational stage into the 1990s, it was a sector that few even wanted to work in. Second, startups is of course a pretty wide term, but there are many who are clones of some US or China company trying to address a fairly imaginary Indian market, so they will eventually fade out or die. Now, there are others who have more advanced technology, including in AI, and they might intersect. But at this point, it's more of a hope rather than a strategy. And I would bet on, at this point, India's traditional IT rather than overfunded companies. And finally, and hopefully, the government will stay out of it completely. Even self-regulation is a dangerous path to explore for something that is covered under multiple tax and companies laws, apart from all other criminal laws that exist in the financial space. The government or the legal system has sufficient tools to go after someone if it wants to. The rest of it, actually quite importantly, is to do with ethics and purpose. There is, unfortunately, very little for a government to do here. Before I go, I would like to acknowledge Amit Nivsarkar from Singapore, who messaged me on LinkedIn yesterday saying he liked my podcast and listens to it on the road. He added that he would like to see me use less data points as too much can confuse. And he also wanted to see more of the hmm section. Points noted. Thank you, Amit. That's it from me for today. Have a great Wednesday and see you tomorrow. This was the core report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in. Or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening. <laughs>